most years, the Oscars are a veritable who's who of Hollywood elite. But at the 34th Academy Awards, it was more of a who's that. Notable stars like Audrey Hepburn and Judy Garland skipped the ceremony due to illness. Jackie Gleason was apparently too afraid of airplanes to attend, and vice versa, quipped host Bob Hope in reference to Gleason's weight. And Sophia Loren was too anxious about her leap from sexpot to serious actress to leave Rome. The absence of more famous faces left room for up-and-comers like Natalie Wood's date for the evening, Warren Beatty, to soak up the attention, and for Beatty to essentially steal the title from Hollywood's reigning male sex symbol and nominee that night, Paul Newman. Likewise, all of the acting winners of the night, Maximilian Schnell, Sophia Loren, George Chakras, and Rita Moreno, were all first-time nominees, and this would stand as each of their only Oscar wins. Likewise, the Best Director winners, Robert Weiss and Jerome Robbins, were first-time winners. In fact, West Side Story is the only film Robbins ever directed. The Oscars regularly award first-time nominees, but it seems like in 1962, on the precipice of cinema's evolution, they were even more inclined to favor the new. Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine Oscar's best picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. I am Devin. And I'm Kyle. And today we are talking about the 34th Academy Awards, which were held in 1962, honoring the best films from 1961. So let's talk about the year that those movies came out. A little, a little history refresher for people like me and Kyle. Who weren't there in 1961. So in 1961, uh, President Kennedy was sworn in that January as President of the United States. Some ongoing things that were happening, the space race, the Cold War, because the Cold War is never not happening, is what I've learned from doing all these podcast episodes, <laughs> and the civil rights movement. In fact, that spring in 1961, freedom writers began writing South to test the new Supreme Court integration decision, and many of those people were arrested and attacked. For their efforts. So some other things. Um, on January 3rd, 1961, diplomatic ties with Cuba were severed. On April 17th, the Bay of Pigs invasion began and failed by April 19th. On April 23rd, Judy Garland performed a legendary comeback concert at Carnegie Hall. And on December 11th, the Vietnam War officially began as the first American helicopters arrived in Saigon, along with 400 U.S. personnel. So the times they were changing. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you for your input on that. <laughs> so let's talk about the year in film, shall we? That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. So here we go. The top 10 films of 1961. In no particular order. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just read them and you guys can decide what order they go into. Okay. Actually, like the chart has the top 14, which I'm not sure why they would do that. But we don't care. We're going to talk about the top 10. Oh, no. Unless you want to know the top 14. I mean, we're, we're there now. Okay. So In the time we've wasted saying that there were 14, we could have just named all 14. Okay, so number 14 was The Misfits, mm. which is Marilyn Monroe's final film. Uh, number 13, Breakfast at Tiffany's. You didn't want to mention Breakfast at Tiffany's? You were just going to ignore that from this podcast? Well, I mean, okay, we have other 
We're going to talk about breakfast fish Oh, we are on another oh. at another time. Oh, perhaps okay. next week. Perhaps. Uh, so thirteen breakfast at Tiffany's. Number twelve, Judgment at Nuremberg. Number eleven, Blue Hawaii, which I believe is an Elvis picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, number ten. Here we go. Top ten. Splendor in the Grass. Number nine, 101 Dalmatians. Eight, King of Kings. Seven, Lover Come Back. Six, La Dolce Vita. In the U.S.? Yeah. Wow. It's popular, I guess. Uh, number five, The Parent Trap. Number four, The Absent-Minded Professor. Disney had a good year. When does Disney have a bad year, really? <laughs> uh, number three, El Cid. Number two, The Guns of Navarone. And number one, West Side Story. Not surprised there. I will say these charts, I think, take into account re-releases, though, is like the one thing. Oh, okay. I think this is like, these are the top films of that year as of today. Well, maybe. Let's change our charts. Well, I only just realized that for this episode. Oh, okay. And it's the charts I've been using. In the future, we will deliver more accurate charts. Well, we'll see. We'll see we what I'll do. We may deliver more accurate charts in the future. <laughs> um, so some film debuts in 1961. Uh, like I said, Warren Beatty made his film debut in Splendor in the Grass. Louis Gossett Jr. in A Raisin in the Sun. Gene Hackman. Ron Howard. Mary Tyler Moore and Burt Reynolds all made their film debuts. Wow, good year. My dad was born. My dad made his like world Life debut. debut. Yeah. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. 1961. Mm-hmm. Little baby. Definitely a little baby. Yep. March 31st. Love you, Dad. Does your dad listen to our podcast? I don't think he knows what a podcast <laughs> is. <laughs> okay. So let's get into this Oscar ceremony. Let's get there. Okay. Here's some fun facts about the ceremony. Mm. I know how you love your Still fun using facts. that word, huh? Okay. <laughs> fun facts. Okay. Federico Fellini earned his first Best Directing nomination for La Dolce Vita, though the film failed. The film the what? film failed. That's hard to say. The film failed to earn a nomination for Best Picture or even Best Foreign Language Film. Wow. So, yeah. He was nominated for Best Director, but they were like, hmm. That's interesting. Not one of the best films. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of Italians, Sophia Loren became the first person to win an acting Oscar for a non-English speaking role, as well as only the second person ever to win Best Actress for a film with only one nomination. A feat that wouldn't occur again until 1989 when Jodie Foster won Best Actress for her role in The Accused, which is also the film's only nomination. What, what film did she win for? Two Women. Okay. Uh, for the first time, two directors shared the award in the directing category, Robert Weiss and Jerome Robbins for West Side Story. And again, that would not happen again for 46 years until uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen won for No Country for Old Men. I want to see this two women movie. Sorry. Um, I was listening to your fun facts and all. But yeah, directed by DeSica, who did like who did Bicycle Thieves. Mm-hmm. Um, also starring Jean-Paul Belmondo. Oh, your fave. Are you okay. changing your pick for our supplemental? I just may, Devin. Okay. I just may. All righty. Uh, West Side Story nearly swept the ceremony. It won 10 of its 11 nominations. The only category it lost in was Adapted Screenplay, which went to Judgment at Nuremberg. Those are all the fun facts I have about the ceremony. Cool. 
Love some good facts. I know you do. Mm-hmm. Fun facts. Facts. All facts are fun. They're definitely facts. That's good. I like, you know, teach that to children for sure. We should get a shirt that says that. All, All facts, facts are, are fun. fun. <laughs> Ugh, I don't know if that's true. That might offend some people. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you want to talk about these movies? I sure do. All right, let's start it up with another fun film. Judgment at Nuremberg by Stanley Kramer, produced by United Artists. Synopsis, in 1948, an American court in occupied Germany tries four Nazi judges for war crimes. It's a pretty spot-on synopsis. That's exactly what that movie's about. Very basic. All right, here's some facts. You can decide if they're fun or not. Written by Abby Mann. Why early you say it like that? <laughs> it's just because that's all I wrote. Cool. Who's a man, by the way? Yeah, that is a man. Yeah. Short for Abraham, I believe. Um, an earlier version of the story <laughs> was brought... What if his name is not, like, actually, like, last name is not man? So, like, he just chose the last name man. So, so people you, would... Yeah. So, it'd just be, like, easier to... He not go by like, Abby. <laughs> that's f- fair. Probably nicer to change your first name. Though. Probably. It'd be easier. Yeah. Okay. An earlier version of the story was broadcast as a television episode of Playhouse 90, and Maximilian Schell played the same role in both productions. Mm. Some film historians and critics have suggested that Stanley Kramer specifically cast broken and erratic performers such as Judy Garland and Montgomery Clift in roles that called for expressions of pain, embarrassment, and terror. This is one of only seven films to receive more than one Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, and one of only two in that seven in which one of the nominees actually won. Hmm. In 1961, when this movie was released, up to 29 states in the U.S. had eugenics boards which actively performed forced sterilizations. Also, miscegenation laws were active and legal in many states in the U.S. until 1967. Jesus. So when the Nuremberg trials of the Nazi judges were going on in Germany in 1947, these same laws were still in effect in the U.S. and did not disappear until 1961, in the case of miscegenation, and 1979 for eugenics. Jeez. It's not crazy. Yeah, I'm going to go with not fun facts. No, but they're like important facts. Yeah, sure. Because I was like really bummed when I read that fact. Because I was like, so here's this movie that's all about like how awful these things were that these Nazi judges did. But like we had the same exact laws in America. Yeah. So, like, who were we to the... I mean, obviously, what the Nazis did were terrible. I'm not trying to say that. But, like, so were we. Yeah. I've talked for so long. You talk about Judgment at Nuremberg now. Judgment at Nuremberg, otherwise known as three hours and six minutes. It didn't feel like three hours, though. I thought it was my turn to talk. Okay, fine. But it didn't feel like three hours. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Thank you. No, it certainly didn't. I mean, um, didn't really know. I mean, I kind of knew what I was expecting to see in this movie, obviously, but I didn't really know exactly what it was about going in. Um, had a pretty had a pretty solid cast, uh, especially at the end of the day. Like you met, you already mentioned Julie Garland, who just comes in for what? You called her Julie. I said Judy. Okay. Hmm. It's recorded. The so listeners we'll know, yeah. <laughs> uh, Judy Garland, I think, just like nails her perfor- like rocks her performance home. Uh, Max Chanel, as you already said, is, is so good. Uh, big highlight, obviously, being Spencer Tracy in the first non-comedic role I've seen him in. And damn, did he just own that character, who's one of the more interesting characters I think we've watched this year. Um, absolutely. And I want to give a, a little shout out to William Shatner. Like, yeah, not just William like, 
yeah, not just like some trekker nerdum going down here, but like he was super good. <laughs> like he was only he only on screen for maybe a total of five minutes, um, as far as like delivering a performance. But it was just so nuanced and so like nice and like it just goes to show, like everybody they cast in this movie like really knocked it out of the park. I think this was an, an actor's movie, one hundred percent. Especially when obviously these actors who weren't just raised in the Hollywood system but did theater before, like I mean, this is basically a play. Like I don't know if it was a play. No, it was well, it was Playhouse ninety, so it was like a play for TV. Right, but I mean, and that's what it and that's what it feels like at the end of the day. It feels like so many of those like play to screen adaptations, um, but like, i.e., Twelve Angry Men. Um, fact, obviously, like a lot of similarities there. Uh, but, but man, they just chewed up their scenes like whosoever whosoever screen time it was just kind of killed it i didn't notice a bad performance in the bunch and that's just something i don't know we don't see all the time like i think everyone did a really great job even the actors like i had never seen before hence max max shell but i mean he was insanely good and just mesmerizing to watch in the performance of the uh defending attorney yeah i agree which like he's defending monsters in our eyes right like mm-hmm. no matter what they're set up to be monsters and it's just but damn like you know mm-hmm. no i definitely agree um the performances are crazy everyone you said and i also want to point out uh burt lancaster also gave a pretty great performance for not speaking until like two-thirds of the way through the movie but um and marlena dietrich but who was okay but um she was good. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say She it. was decent. Burt Lancaster was like, okay. Actually, like... I liked his, like, final speech thing. Sure. No, I agree. I, I, I guess I agree. But, I mean, he did not do a ton of acting throughout. It was just, like, look sullen. Well, yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? I'm not saying he but was I, the best performance. I'm just saying he also gave a very good performance in a sure. cast of good performances. Yes. And, um... It, I definitely agree with you. It's definitely an actor's film. There, the performances are the best i feel like that's like the the strongest point in the film Mm -hmm. but i also think that like it's a well-written film and it's very nuanced too in a way because it you know i feel like this came out in 1961 you're not that far removed from world war ii you know what i mean there's definitely people who who served and who saw these things and who are still going to see movies and um for them to like take even like a slightly sympathetic view of they're not really taking a similar view of Nazis. It's more of like occupied German citizens who, whether they didn't have a choice and blah, blah. But, um, I think this movie like holds up so well though, too, because it really feels like not to get too political because it's mostly a movie podcast, but like, I feel like we do kind of need a reminder right now of like, we all need to be cognizant of like standing up to things that don't seem right even if it doesn't directly affect us and it affects like our neighbors or whatever like it just takes enough people turning the other way and being like well this doesn't concern me and i'm just going to go along with this because it's easier to get to the point that germany got to right prior to world war ii so i just i think that you know that message this movie holds up really well because that message is still important and it Amen. conveys that message very well. I agree. I think it absolutely resonates. I do want to say, too, for being such a uh, a talking movie, because, I mean, it's primarily all it is, 
they did some really nice stuff with the visuals being that we're in a courtroom for 80 to 85 percent of this movie um they mixed it up a lot and did some interesting camera movements and really made it feel like it wasn't just you know well you're not watching c-span i'll tell you that yeah <laughs> um but yeah i mean I, I i gotta praise the director on on and the cinematographer on that one for just really again like making something that was just a bunch of talking heads a lot of the time uh seem visually captivating absolutely i will say too just from like a film standpoint i think the scenes in the courtroom which like you said are like 80 percent of the movie are flawless if you wanted to cut down that three hours, I honestly feel like most of the stuff that happens outside of the courtroom, mm. which i.e. is like a lot of them are Lena teacher stuff, like is oh. not super necessary. Man, I, I got to disagree with really? you. I think we need a breather from the courtroom that's every once true. in a that's while. That's true. And I think that's where we really get a good feel for the judge who I think is ultimately, I mean, this movie called Judgment at Nuremberg. Yes. We're following the judge and we're, and we're kind of getting, we're, we're getting an idea for how he is maybe taking a little outside influence, which he probably shouldn't do. Yeah. But he's trying to get a grasp on the situation that he knows is like detrimental and mm-hmm. and big. I suppose that's true. And I really like those scenes, actually. Like the scene where he meets the helpers at the house that was formerly that of a Nazi officer. Yeah. Um, and Marlena Dietrich, her husband in the, in the movie. Um, I don't know. It's getting kind of a feel for the actual like working class now who maybe wasn't necessarily a nazi you know we get that mm-hmm. we that that allows us our access to the germans who were not necessarily nazis but yeah and i think that's a distinction a lot of movies don't make that not all germans were nazis you know right right for sure i agree okay you've convinced me i was wrong okay it can but keep yeah, all the scenes again a three hour and six minute movie that like kind of flies by and and obviously like this is a movie like i would love to show my kids um in school but yeah, I don't know if I have two weeks to spare to watch a three-hour movie because it's, it's broken up a little bit in school. Uh, but uh, just such a solid, I don't know, such a solid view that um, I think, and with the point you bring up, you know, about standing up, even if even if it's not the easiest thing to do, mm-hmm. um, yeah, really resonates today. I think this is a timeless movie. Absolutely. For the greatest war. That's a long pause. What are we <laughs> pausing for? Um, because apparently I didn't look up the Rotten Tomato audience score for this movie. That's okay. Okay. We'll just assume it's good. Our score is solid. Yeah. <laughs> um, at the box office, it made $10 million worldwide. And as far as the list that it was named to, the American Film Institute, on their 10 top 10 lists, on their list of the best courtroom dramas, it's ranked at number 10. Hmm. And on their list of screen legends... And number 19, Burt Lancaster. Number 9, Spencer Tracy. And number 8, Judy Garland. And Judgment Nuremberg was preserved in the National Film Registry in 2013. A little late, but that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't wasn't one they were rushing to put in there, I guess. But (laughs) Yeah. All right, you ready to talk about our next movie? I sure am, Devin. All right, let's talk about The Hustler. The Hustler. By Robert Rossin. Rosen? Rosen? I don't know. You guys tell us. Produced by 20th Century Fox. Synopsis. An up-and-coming pool player plays a longtime champion in a single high-stakes match. A single? Oh, I guess a match. I guess match is not... 
you know, match can include many games. Yeah. But it's also two matches then. Yeah. So it's not the best synopsis. No, it's not a great one. (laughs) IMDb is failing us a little bit on The Hustler. Okay. You know, for season three, I'm going to just write all the synopses. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) All right. I mean, come on. These are so bland and lame. People aren't even getting a good feel for what the movie is, you know? (laughs) That's true. But then we talk about it. Do we? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. If you want, if you want to write the synopsis, but then like I feel like it's a lot of synopsis. Yeah. To write. That's, that's, that's too, you're right. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Hustler was adapted for the screen by director Robert Rosson and Sidney Carroll from Walter Tevis's 1959 novel of the same name. Paul Newman reprised his role as Fast Eddie Felsen in the 1986 film The Color of Money, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role. A number of observers and critics have suggested that this Oscar was a belated recognition of his performance in The Hustler. This film was also somewhat autobiographical for Rawson, relating to his dealings with the House Un-American Activities Committee. A screenwriter during the 1930s and 40s, he had been involved with the Communist Party in the 1930s and refused to name names at his first HUAC appearance. Ultimately, he changed his minds and identified friends and colleagues as party members. Similarly, Felsen sells his soul and betrays the one person who really knows and loves him to gain character. Hmm. Interesting. interesting yes that's a that's a good fact thanks was that fun that was you fun, rate that good. as fun okay. good good we're working our way towards fun right uh so the hustler i had not seen this before and uh so what'd you think i really enjoyed it well i don't know enjoyed is probably the wrong word because it's not like a fun movie right it's pretty dark but um i mean paul newman is a great actor it's probably simplifying things a bit but <laughs> but uh i really enjoyed it and i thought that it was a compelling story with what are you are you like you feel like you're you're in the hot seat right now what is happening <laughs> i don't really have a lot of prepared thoughts for this all right one. i'm gonna talk about it okay Jeez, woof. <laughs> all right so this is my second viewing of the hustler and i remember it being a lot better oh wow didn't particularly enjoy this film um i thought it had some like sure it had some quality content i think the first 20 it's probably 20 25 minutes super solid excellent great and then the movie just lost it for me i didn't care about the story i was not attracted to these characters i didn't really i i just was not vibing with this movie like honestly i think fast eddie is you know i mean cool he's a he's a realistic relatable character i guess it feels like a a Damien Chazelle character, if you will, just a, just a man. Like a dick. <laughs> yes, a man who's obsessive and, uh, you know, for glory and just kind of a dick and, and yeah, doesn't treat people well, you know, like. That's interesting. Um, no, but uh, yeah, I just it kind of lost me, you know. So he he ends up after his first match with uh, Fats. What's his name? Minnesota Fats. Minnesota Fats. Played by Jackie Gleason. Who's great. Yeah. After his first match, you know, he gets drunk and he ends up fucking up, even though he's clearly the better pool player. And he throws it away. He lost all his money. His partner's mad. He meets this girl who's also just kind of a mess in her own way. And then they are a mess together. And no one's really helping anyone here. And then he makes the situation worse. And she dies. 
and then he comes back. So this is the synopsis it's, you're writing yeah, for. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. It's like nothing like really interesting happens. Now, what 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 makes the movie good is like visually stimulating. Like it is an excellent looking movie. They chose to be black because and white even Newman. in 1961. What? Is that because of Paul Newman? Well, yeah. <laughs> Like it, for real though, like yeah. Paul Newman's beautiful to look at. Yes. It's very stylized. They make pool look like the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, which I gotta give him credit for. You know pool what I mean? Like, cool. it's not that cool. Like, okay. it's not. It's fun. I play it. Like, I'm no Eddie. I'm no fast Eddie, but like, I'm like a slow Kyle. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it makes it. You know, it obviously it just makes it look like a fun. Um, kind of gives it a lot of stakes. You know, fast paced. It's nice. But dude, again, this movie comes down to the performances. Like Paul Newman aside, uh, Jackie Gleason, who's just like most famous from the Honeymooners in a more like comedic role, just like owns this character. And like, I don't know what his I guess legend is in Hollywood, but man, if that's not a like, if you have a character you want to be remembered by. It's his portrayal of Minnesota Fats because that is just the epitome of cool. Like he just nails it and just creates a character that, I mean, is kind of iconic. Not a good guy, not a bad guy. He just like owns it and gives this performance 100%. I would hate to see like it's just, oh, he just didn't even really act. That's how he was or something. You know what I mean? And that's fine. But like I just, I his every time he was on the screen, I ate it up. And the same thing goes for George C. Scott. Yes. And I can't think of a role I've not, I've seen George C. Scott in where he doesn't own every ounce of that frame he's in, you know. Um, and so those powerhouse three right there, like, I mean, man, it was amazing to watch them all work. It was. But as far as as far as this adaptation from a book by you know and by director Rob Rosen, like. I bet the book's better. Like I, I want to read it because there's probably something the else there that, better. and this something got lost in translation to the to the celluloid. I don't know. Like, I just was not digging this movie. That's so crazy to me because this definitely seems like a movie you would love. Yeah. And I really like now. I feel weird because I feel like I liked this movie so much more than you. you I mean, you clearly did. I think though, like I just think it's such an interesting story, and it is about like. Well, one, I think this podcast has also proven that I'm much more um, attracted to anti-hero characters than you are. You don't like your your antagonist or your protagonist. She to be loves a, Walter White, by to, the way. I we're not getting into that. <laughs> he is not an anti-hero. I don't know how many times I have to explain that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you. It seems like you don't like your protagonist to be like uh, bad people, but yeah. um, and I do. <laughs> so right. So I, I mean, think that's why you like me, right? <laughs> no. I'm bad. Okay. <laughs> bad. <laughs> but um, I think it's just like a really compelling story about a very like broken person who meets another broken person, mm-hmm. and they're broken together. And then he completely breaks her, essentially. <laughs> yes. And then that's the only thing that can like stop him from being. Well, he's still broken, but it like fixes him to a certain extent, gives him the character right. or whatever that he needs to. Like win at pool, but um, like I just don't like. I'm not gonna root for the man at the end who just like slapped a woman 15 minutes before across the face really, really hard. Sure, that's fair. That's fair. I don't care if he looks like Paul Newman. No, I know, <laughs> but I'm not saying you should root for him because he's good looking. But I think that he, 
what he did to um sarah i feel like he obviously regrets i feel like he didn't fully understand what he was doing absolutely because i think that he's a person who like he had tunnel vision when it came to right what he was doing and he was just a very selfish person at the end of the day like he didn't he only cared about himself right which is the same about like George C. Scott's character is the exact same thing, but he doesn't evolve. Do you know what I mean? Like no, he no, no, no. honestly is as much to blame for her death as I absolutely Eddie agree. Is. I think where I think where I where I'm failing here is like if I was growing up, and I was my age I am now, when this movie came out, I would probably love it because comparatively they have not shown a lot like this on screen. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. where it falls for me now is that like there are so many stories like this there are so many movies out there that do similar things perhaps better perhaps worse but that's not really the point i feel like at the time this movie went down as like whoa what a portrayal of like real people like people i know or my my parents or whatever else it is you know Mm -hmm. and i think that's maybe why it stood out in the crowd in 1961 Mm -hmm. but i don't know you know like if you put it amongst movies that come out today that battle similar subjects it's just like I don't know if it's above average. That's interesting. I would say it still is. Largely because of the performances. I mean, George C. Scott, who again tried to, he got nominated for Best Point Actor and then like boycotted the Oscars and was like, mm-hmm. this is a meat parade or whatever his problem is with the Oscars. But um, his performance is great. Piper Laurie is amazing. Paul Newman obviously is good. Jackie Gleason. Like the performances I think are really, really good. And I think, you know, part of this whole, like, this podcast exercise is, like, one, looking at how it holds up, but also, like, looking at it in context of the year. And I think, like, it does – the importance of other movies not being like this and this was like this is important because it kind of, like, breaks barriers. And, you know, the 60s was really, like, a time when film changed a lot. By the end of the 60s, you know, you've got, like, Easy Amen. Rider and that and kind of And this 100% led – yeah led the charge and i i fully agree with that and what i think is in what i really think is interesting too like i was what i said to you like right after we finished watching it was like it's crazy that this movie came out the same year as parks at tiffany's because i honestly feel like piper laurie's character sarah is like the unglamorous version of holly golightly interesting yeah but then it also makes me because uh we'll talk more about parks at tiffany's later but like that that's based on a book which is also has a less glamorous version of Holly Golightly. And it, so it was just like, you know, it seems like they changed that character to be more like, oh, like cinema appropriate. But then you have this character of Sarah, which has some of those darker qualities coming out the same year, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just feel like maybe but, it could have But been look, done. At, look at those two films side by side. One is certainly not going for that dark portrayal. And one certainly is. Yeah. Like Breakfast at Tiffany's was supposed to appeal to like a mass amount of people. And it did. Yeah. It's still. And the hustler like wasn't like not supposed to. Yeah. But certainly went for like a different audience or a different vibe altogether. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hate that I said vibe twice now in this podcast. It's 2018. Teach high school and stupid things rub off on me. and I hate (laughs) it. I will not say anything is lit. However. I appreciate that. Gotcha, fam. All right. No one knows what you're talking about. <laughs> I doubt a lot of high school students listen to this podcast. That's yeah. <laughs> They've heard it. They all heard it somewhere. I've never heard that. Okay. All right. So, so I did we, look are up. We, are we done talking about the husband? Oh, did you have more to say? Hmm. Let me know. Let me okay. See. Then I'll tell you what other people thought of it. Okay. 
It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 93% and a critic score of 98%. The box, box office it made $7.6 million. The American Film Institute, um, on their list of the 10 top 10, it was ranked at the number as the number six sports film. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you okay with pool being labeled as a, this being labeled as a sports this movie? This is a sports movie. Okay. It a hundred percent is a sports movie. I just want to check. I know you have strong feelings about what yes. is a sports movie and what is it? The raging bull is not a fucking boxing movie. Okay. It is, but that's fine. It's about a boxer. Sure. It is a boxing movie. It's not. There's like, okay. I'm not even it is as that. much a boxing movie as this is a pool movie. There's so much pool in this movie. There are two scenes of pool in this movie. There two are, long scenes. Of one pool. long scene and one slightly shorter scene okay there's i guarantee you the boxing scenes in rachel bull are longer <laughs> than those pool scenes whatever just because the editing's so good they seem short <laughs> uh the screen pay, screenplay for the hustler was ranked uh number 96th on the writer guild's list of the best screenplays of all time and in 1997 the library of congress selected the hustler for preservation in the national film registry cool Alrighty, moving on along to the guns of Navarone by <laughs> Jay Lee. Louise. What? Just a Jeez Louise. That's how it's pronounced. Is it? Yeah. Gladiator. The guns of Navarone by Jay Lee Thompson, produced by Columbia. Synopsis: A British team is sent to cross occupied Greek territory and destroy the massive German gun emplacement that commands a key sea channel. So that's no, not so much a synopsis as a spoiler. <laughs> is it? Oh, why is that a spoiler? That's what they're they sent said there they to said, do. Well, they said and destroy, not to destroy. They're just like, they destroy the guns. Oh, well, I feel like that's the a typo the then. They're, well, yeah, but they're sent there to destroy. That's their mission the whole time. Yeah. They destroy these guns. You find this out in the first two minutes. I mean, like, in the first two minutes, I also was pretty sure they were going to succeed at destroying <laughs> those guns. So I don't really know if it's a spoiler. That's true. They had to save a bunch of people. Otherwise, all these people would die if they didn't get rid of these guns because these ships were coming to pick them up. It's kind of like uh, Dunkirk in a way. Kind of. It's like the Dunkirk mission a little bit. Like. there, Yeah. Well, there weren't, like, people legitimately Stranded. fighting for their lives no but they were like yeah they were all gonna starve to death if these ships didn't come help them well, that's true so then they were they had to, well, they had saying, to blow up like, the guns to stop people, the though. ships no no but i'm just saying it was a, it was a story of like saving thousands like m- few men risking their lives to save thousands you mm-hmm. know what i mean and i think uh yeah well, the screenplay by producer Carl Foreman was based on Alistair McLean's 1957 novel, The Guns of Navarone, which was inspired by the Battle of Leros during the Dodecanesis campaign. Great, you're doing <laughs> World solid. War II. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I don't mean to be offensive when I don't know how to pronounce things. And I hope if anyone is offended, I'm sorry. Uh, Our research has to stop somewhere. Well, how am I supposed to look up how to pronounce things? How do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. If someone knows how to do that, please let me know. I would start with Googling, like, how to pronounce, <laughs> and then mm, insert here. I don't think that would work. <laughs> uh, David Niven became seriously ill after shooting in the pool of water in the cave elevator and had to be hospitalized for weeks. He almost died. And talks of completing his scenes with another actor began. 
Also, they threw around the idea of just abandoning the entire project and collecting the insurance money. Whoa. <laughs> but he eventually recovered and finished Wait, how did filming. he almost die? He got like pneumonia or something while he was, because he was filming in the water for so long. Yeah. And he ended up in the hospital for like a really long time and almost died. Jeez. Yeah. He's like one of the best parts of the movie too. Mm-hmm. What a, a future theory. Bond. David Niven? Yeah. What do you mean? He was in Casino Royale. I don't know if that counts oh, as a Bond movie, no, though. No, it does not officially count okay. as a Bond movie. But Technically, he was kind of... He was talking like, about the original. Yeah, he was like Royale. Bond with an asterisk. Right, 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 right. I think that's, that falls into like a whole rights thing, and like it wasn't the same companies or producers or and it was It was like else. a spoof movie of like the James Bond movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all I got on fun facts. Do you want me to talk about Guns of Navarone, or do you want me to... I'll start it off. Okay, cool. Go. Um, The Guns of... Navarone. I, I said it. <laughs> um, honestly, starts off as a as a pretty kick butt war picture. Like I'm pretty I'm pretty pumped about it. These are like spies. We're setting up the mission. Um, we have uh, <laughs> we have Cary Grant playing. Uh, we don't. What? Who is it? Gregory Peck. Oh yeah, same thing. <laughs> we have Gregory Peck playing a British soldier. Which is hilarious. He doesn't attempt to be British. No, he doesn't. He sure, he sure doesn't. So there's a little bit of like, oh, is he the American helping out? No, he's that. No. Um, I, I, I assumed he was American. He's recruited, he's recruited for this like basically suicide mission because he's like a good climber. And he's and, like, oh, it's been a while since then, I've climbed a rock. Yeah, he's like, we gotta, you have to climb this rock that the Germans don't watch. Spoiler, they end up watching it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, dude, it's like the typical, like, putting a team together movie. Everyone's got their own specialized skill. They have a mission. I mean, I haven't seen a ton of older war movies back in the day, but they certainly continue this today. So I don't know, you know, if this is, like, one of the first ones that did that or what. I, I mean, I doubt it. But um, definitely just played, like, a like a pretty good war movie. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I particularly enjoyed this movie amongst the crowd of movies uh, from this year. Um Again, like as you mentioned, David Niven gives such a fun performance as this uh, demolitions expert. He he has like all the witty lines, basically, because mm-hmm. he's like not the fighter type guy. He's the yeah, scientist. Yeah, he's the scientist, uh, the scholar. They call him. Um, but who just, can't swim? Who can't? He, he makes he lets you know he can't. He can't swim. He lets you know a bunch, which is weird. They almost died of pneumonia from swimming. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, like I mean. This picture feels big when it needs to be big. It has great, smaller, intimate moments. A lot of great set pieces. Uh, Just the production value. The I wouldn't say everyone was the most talented involved, but everyone (laughs) certainly got the job done. It was a team effort. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Obviously, the direction nothing to, you know, nothing to write home about. But, like, overall, like, with the story and uh, these characters that you kind of grow to, like, love or hate, like, they really pull through. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a fun war movie. It's a fun little war movie. I agree. You know, I went into this movie um, with, like, no real expectations because, one, I hadn't really heard of it. And, two, I don't really (laughs) like war movies. (laughs) But, um, But it was fun. I think that's a good way to describe it. It is... It moves quickly for the most part. It kind of like the ending could have come faster. But um, <laughs> well, at a certain point, you're just like, 
no, I get it. You're going to destroy the guns if we could just, like, get to that. It would be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, like, some weird things with, like, spies and uh, whatnot. They don't take the same approach as Judgment of Nuremberg of, like, if you go along with people to save yourself, you're you're a little bit more innocent. They're just like, uh, shoot her. It's their, <laughs> their take on that. But um, Spies are a whole different breed. Yeah, that's true. When she was like actively right, like, yeah. like going against them. But um, yeah, no, it was a fun movie. Like Gregory Peck, you know, it's not like his best performance, obviously, but you know, he's good. He's good. He did what he had to do. He was there, and he said his lines, <laughs> and I believed him. I literally did not know he was supposed to be British until I was looking up stuff about this movie oh, really? afterwards. I had, no, yeah. I didn't even think about it. I was just like, he must be American because. He sounds so American. And uh, I think you're right. Like it has, it won, it did win the Oscar for special effects. And I think that it had some pretty good special effects, the like blowing up the, had some good action. The guns. (laughs) Yeah. The blowing up of the guns of Navarone was good. (laughs) And uh, uh, I mean, I don't have a lot to say about it. I will say like when I was looking up stuff about it, they, there was a lot of, of, uh, talk about how this was intended to be an anti-war movie which i didn't fully get while watching it like i wouldn't say that this is the most anti-war movie i've ever seen they make killing nazis look pretty cool so Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of you know just like uh they they kill a lot of people and it's just like people who are likely just like young people who had to join the army but they also, like, don't kill a lot of people, too. They kill a lot of people. No, I understand. But who are just, like, doing their jobs. But, they cho- but no, but there's people they also, like, like they left the Nazis behind in that one, you know, area. Like, well, it's just because it would have been harder for them to escape. It would have, like, alerted people to something being wrong if there was, like, a bunch of gunfire, you know? No, but I mean, they could have just murdered them. They tied them all up and, like, left them. That's true. Like, they're, I mean, they kill people when they had to, when it was, like, going to... reveal them Mm -hmm. and ruin the mission they kill people when it like when they could get without go without killing someone they didn't but like i will like i said fun little war picture i didn't mean like in a way that makes war look fun i just wanted to specify that i think there were elements of like all quiet on the western front within this movie like there was people who hated the idea of war but they also like had to do what they had to do for the better of civilization I get that. I would just say like something like All Quiet on the Western Front though is a better well, it's a better movie. And it's a better anti war movie oh, just yeah. because it like it really shows the terrible conditions that those people were living in. Yeah. Whereas this, like, yeah, there were people who didn't agree with what they were doing and like didn't agree with the war, but it uh, still made the war look cool. I see what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Even though the characters weren't necessarily agreeing with what they were doing, yeah. They didn't show any of the like the true perils or Right. I got what you're saying. And it was all, all just talk, really. Yeah. And then they did kill off two people on the team, but like in the weirdest. In the dumbest way. Like like there were stakes or something. And it just. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even know if I know that guy's name, honestly. But like, it just seemed like, oh, we have to show that it would, it would be too unbelievable if all of them survived. So here we are killing two of them. Right. I honestly, like, for a minute when they, like, started killing him, I was like, is this going to be, like, a thing where they all die and it is a suicide mission? And I was like, that'd be rad. But then that didn't happen. And I was like, okay, well, never mind that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand the point of this. Thing. Even if it was based on a true story and they all died, they wouldn't have died in this movie. No. Gregory Peck's like, I don't die. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's in my contract. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
but yeah i do think it was a good war movie i don't know if it's like best picture worthy honestly if we're talking Mm -hmm. nominations but i'm with you on that one but it wasn't the worst way to spend an evening certainly not all right what other people think about it it has a rotten tomato audience score of 86 percent and a critic score of 95 percent the box office made 28.9 million dollars was the second highest grossing film of the year on american film institute's list of 100 thrills it's ranked at number 89 and on their list of screen legends gregory peck is at number 12. Right on, yeah. All right, next up, we got Fanny by Joshua Logan, produced by Warner Brothers. Synopsis, a love triangle between a young man, a rich 60-something man, and an aspiring sailor. Oh, did I say young man? You can redo it. (laughs) Synopsis, a love triangle between a young woman, a rich 60 a rich six i can't read wow take three you know what i can do my synopsis (laughs) no i'm gonna do it and then you can do yours synopsis a love triangle between a young woman a rich 60 something man and an aspiring sailor set in early 20th century marseille well done thank you without any plot details really that's the plot is it (laughs) it's a love triangle okay what's your synopsis I don't know. Okay. (laughs) I guess that works. Uh, The screenplay by Julius J. Epstein is based on the book for the 1954 stage musical of the same title by Joshua Logan S.N. Berman, which in turn had been adapted from Marcel Pagnol's trilogy, Marius, 1929, Fanny, 1932, um, plays which he adapted to a film a year or two later, and Cesar, the film he wrote and directed for the screen in 1936 and later adapted for the stage. That was confusing, and I apologize. The film deleted all of the songs from the 1954 stage musical, but the music by Harold Rome served as the underscore for the soundtrack, and the title tune is used as the main title theme. Although it had been composed for another medium, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Score. Uh, Jack L. Warner of Warner Brothers purchased the screen rights to the stage musical, but eventually decided he wanted the film to exclude the songs because the popularity of movie musicals was on the wane. Ironically, Mm. it came out the same year as West Side Story, which became the highest grossing (laughs) film of the year and beat Fanny for Best Picture at the Oscars. (laughs) And in fact, uh, it was the only Best Picture nominee not also nominated for Best Director and despite five nominations, it was the only Best Picture nominee to not win a single award. Ousted. Tough luck, Fanny. You know, sorry, I had to take a sip of water. But um, I think it's really funny that they this is based on a musical, and then it uh used that the score, the music from the musical as the score because there were so many times watching this movie where it felt like people were, were about, about to, to burst into song yes, it did. and then they just didn't no i know <laughs> it was very it was frustrating. <laughs> yeah. i'd be like "Ooh, a song's because i mean the once music we got like, like 30 minutes in i was like there's no songs in here yeah yeah i was like mm. oh this isn't happening yeah but it just kept feeling like it was going to happen yeah i agree and i will say you know we we're talking about um judgment at nuremberg being three hours long and not feeling like three hours this movie was a little over two hours. <laughs> Felt a lot like four. Not going to lie. 
it uh yeah it also you know like everything i read in research for this was like oh that makes sense like the thing about the musical and then reading that it's based on like three separate plays yeah i'm like yeah no that's definitely what it feels like like there's just three stories right being crammed together into one movie right and it could have just ended after that second one and everything would have been great. Well, it would have been a sad ending. Well, yeah. But a better movie. <laughs> but a better movie. 100%. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Leslie Caron is great. She effectively pulled off playing 18 when she was 30 years old. So that's kudos to her for that. Uh, Marie Chevalier is a delight as always. <laughs> he is a fun performer. He plays the older uh, he plays the sixty-something man. Yeah. In the love triangle. Yeah. And uh, he's fun. And I don't remember the guy who played Caesar, but he was great too. Yes. Let me uh, let me give him some credit because I honestly think he was he was one of the highlights of the movie for sure. Mm-hmm. And his name is Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer. Yes. Um, shout out to you, Charles. Shout out, Chuck. If you're listening. He's probably dead. So, what did you think of Fanny? I didn't, I don't know. I like, I really liked it at first. I was super into it. It was like this fun, you know, not a musical, but felt like a musical (laughs) thing about like a love story and, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, this is fun and it's funny and had a lot of like, like I thought it was like genuinely really funny. Yeah. During the first part, which I guess would be like the, the Marius portion of the okay, no one cares about that part like i mean no one cares about the relation to the originals sure i'm just saying but i'm saying that like literally is broken down so like the first yes. part I was first like, act let's call it act. first act i was like yes on board and then the second act i was like oh this is taking a drastic turn into melodrama but i'm still on board this mm-hmm. is interesting it's dealing with some subjects that i wouldn't expect a movie in 1961 to be dealing right, with right right but cool and then if it would have just ended after that second I'm, act. I'm, I 100% agree. I'd have been like, great. But then it went on and on and on, 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 on. And I was like, I don't need any like, of this. Seriously, the third act just drags. It's so unnecessary. And it's like, it's literally like all these mechanisms and like things happening literally just to get to a place where it can have a quote unquote happy ending. Right. Which I don't need. First of all, Marius, the man who abandons the love of his life to go be a sailor. I don't need him to have a happy ending. He can just, I don't care what happens he to him. He can fuck off. I don't care. He can fall off the edge of the world. Right. And then like, um, what's the guy's name? Pernice. 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 He's great. At first I thought he was a creepy old dude hitting on Leslie Caron. Right. But then he turns out to be just like the sweetest, nicest man in the entire world. Yeah. I mean, he is, he definitely comes off as, it's not like, it's not like I misunderstood. He definitely comes off as a creep. Yeah. It's definitely creepy in that first part. But then I think he, I think he was just having a morning. (laughs) Well, you know what's interesting? If it's based on like three different things in that first part is like Marius. If that's like from his point of view, it makes sense that he was creepy. And then the second Ah. two are from like Fanny's point of view and Cesar's point of view. So then he would be, you know what I mean? Yeah. But honestly, he's great, and I want like, him to ha- have a happy ending. Yeah. And unfortunately, his ha- his happy ending in this film includes him dying. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, but he's happy about it. He's happy about it's, it, and, and he just he's he he works really hard to get this girl, and then he's just like so happy to just give her right back. 
Yeah, he's like, I'm done with her now. Yep. Got my kid. Got a user. You have had they even like what you know what really bothers me is like they even go to say like he goes to say like oh basically she actually he got his due because he was saying like I had an affair like it was yeah. purely sexual he was just like Fanny was never like that with me mm-hmm. so it's just like but that just like pisses me off at the end of the day I mean, like this girl did not get hers for years because she was held up on this sailor piece of shit yeah who's not worth it girl not no like you could honestly get anyone. Because you're beautiful and less like her own. Right. And this guy sucks. Yeah. I mean, I get it. When you guys are when you guys are young and you know, you're only two on the dock or whatever else. <laughs> yeah, like, you're the only two good looking people in this I town. Get I get it. that. But. I get it. But like, dude. But now yeah. you're like rich and an adult. And he's like a mechanic. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Whatever. We it's don't love. Even that, but. What? I don't think we need to go to like a class battle here. Oh, I'm not saying a class, but I'm just saying like he sucked. But um, and he was like just—he literally lived. Yeah, he was a shitty person, and never went never and talked wrote, to his dad. Yeah, never wrote her a letter the whole time he was at sea, and then moves back home, and like he loves his dad so much, he wrote him letters and shit. But he moves back home and just like doesn't tell anybody. Yeah, for years he like could go see his dad and does not, and his yeah. dad is also the best person. You know when we get really pissed off, the third act. Yeah. So the first two are honestly great. Yes. This is a fun movie. I actually just ate it up and I like absolutely loved it. And the third act is what is making me not choose this as the best picture from 1961. Well, that is. I don't even know what to say to that because <laughs> like, that's insanity to me. But really, I just not I tr- a single second of this movie made me think it was better than West Side Story. So I don't oh. know like why. Okay. I, tr- I truly loved it. Like, I truly loved the first two acts. Like, I was with it 100, 110%. 110%. I really thought this was, like, some gem that, like, it took me 29 years to see. Wow. You were in a better mood when we watched this than when we watched <laughs> The Hustler. <laughs> I really did, though. I really, I did, I did. I would recommend this movie, but I would say, like, you know when to hit eject. <laughs> like, as soon as it's real sad. Just stop watching. <laughs> yeah. It. I mean, if it ended after that second act, it would be like a downer ending a little bit. A little bit if you care about Fanny and Marius. Marius. That's how but they say they don't it. give you a lot of reason to care about Marius. No. You really just feel sympathy for Fanny. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to see her so sad. It's not Marius that you like are like, oh, he's cool though. No, because he was dumb. Mm-hmm. Well, we can wrap this up, I think. Okay, yeah. We don't have to okay. keep talking about it. <laughs> um, it has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 70%. And it does not have a critic score because it has less than five reviews mm. from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Which seems weird to me, honestly. Yeah. It's not all the people saw this movie. Um, at the box office, it made $4.5 million. And that includes U.S. and Canada rentals. And it is not named to any notable lists. Next up, we have the winner of Best Picture and nearly every other award, <laughs> West Side Story, directed by Robert Weiss and Jerome Robbins and produced by United Artists. Synopsis. Two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love <laughs> with tensions between their respective friends build toward tragedy. I would actually disagree with that synopsis because they are not a part of either gang. That's true. They're like... <laughs> gang adjacent 
Um, it was written by Ernest Lehman and based on the musical directed by Jerome Robbins, which is based on Romeo and Juliet by uh, Shakespeare. Music is by Leonard Bernstein and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Robert Weiss, a veteran director, was brought in to direct the dramatic elements, with Jerome Robbins serving as choreographer and director of the musical numbers. About a third of the way into filming, the production was over budget and behind schedule, largely because of Robbins' perfectionism. So Robbins was let go, having only directed four musical numbers, The Prologue, Cool, I Feel Pretty, and America. The remaining musical numbers were directed with the help of his assistants. Robert Weiss felt that Robin's contribution still warranted him a co-directing credit, and they became the first directing team to win at the Oscars. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that Robert Weiss was like, I can't do this alone. Like, this yeah. is not my world. We need to bring in, like, help. You know what I mean? I guess they, like, I mean, I think it's nice that he, like, still let him keep his name on it after he was fired. Yeah. But I guess there was still, like, tensions between them. And when they won, like, neither one of them thanked the other person when they got up there to accept the award. (laughs) That's funny. I want to watch that one. I know, right? Uh, So it's 10 Oscar wins make it the most successful musical in Academy history. And only three other films have won 11 Oscars. Though technically, West Side Story also won 11 Oscars because Jerome Robbins won a special award for contributions to choreography on film. Oh, that's interesting. But it's not a competitive Oscar, so I guess that doesn't yeah. count. Mm-hmm. But yeah. That's uh, cool, What's though. that story? I'll go first, because I honestly don't even want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> that's the story of us, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, this is, like, okay, like, I just have to, like, you know, disclosure. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a biased review because I love West Side Story. I I understand that there are problems with it, but I don't care about those problems because I love the movie. Like whitewashing? You the whitewashing about? obviously is problematic. I'm not saying that I like. <laughs> but you don't. You just that. don't care about it. I'm just saying that like I still love this movie. It doesn't hinder my loving. Mm-hmm. Personally, I feel that West Side Story is the best film musical of all time i think the choreography is like amazing and honestly like i i never knew that jerome robbins only did four of the numbers but i will say like those four are probably like the four best dancing yeah the four yeah outside of uh dance at the gym is really good dancing as well but it doesn't have that same kind of it's no it's not on the same level as america or cool or the prologue I feel pretty really isn't doesn't have that much dancing. No. Well, I mean, more than like you look at something like G Officer Krupke, which has like very limited dancing, mm-hmm. which like they could, there was still more. And I feel pretty like really the biggest dancing numbers, like truly like the most memorable dancing numbers came from from Jerome Robbins. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the choreography in this film is like breathtaking. It's so good. The music, I mean, and a lot of this, like, isn't even the movie. It's just that, like, Steven Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein are, like, geniuses. And I think that this is their best work, like, hands down. So the music is fantastic. The story, the story is the story. You know, it's Romeo and Juliet. Except they don't kill both of them at the end. So it's classic. Yeah, it's, like, it doesn't make sense that these two people fall in love after exchanging four words. But you just kind of have to, like buy into that premise and just go along for the ride if you're watching like a Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Do you know what I mean? Like you just gotta deal with that. That's what happens. Okay. 
What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You can't do anything about it. <laughs> I don't like the way you're looking at me right now. Like you're just making me actually dislike this movie. <laughs> and I really, really like it. So Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just saying, like, I love it and I am just I'm addressing the fact that I know that there are problems with it. But also it's the best movie musical of all time. So I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> That's all you want to say? I just oh, like I just feel like anything else I say just is like nitpicking things. Do you know what I mean? Because like when you love something, it's really hard to like I just sit here and talk about all the things I love, but like that doesn't that's not a critique. That's not like a reasonable discussion. It's just like oh, I love Anita's dress and I love this and I love like it's not. All right. Why don't you let me talk then and you can just jump in okay. for anything you agree or disagree with. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, you're crazy. Why? <laughs> um, I will agree. This is definitely one of the best uh, movie musicals there is for sure. Um, fantastic, memorable songs. Um, yeah, you know, outside of Rita Moreno, there's a lot of problems with the casting here. And like, the fact that she was sure. the only Puerto Rican person playing a Puerto Rican. Yeah. Yes. I but, agree. And, but then also, like, the performances, like, Bernardo was, like, okay, but a lot of them were just, like, meh to me. Yeah, I'm honestly really surprised like, that George Chakras won Best Supporting Actor for this. Right. I honestly think if they took these performances and, like, actually did a Broadway production, different story. Yeah. Because they overacted. You know what I mean? They performed like they were doing theater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, But, I mean, this movie's big. Yes. So they're big. And it's forg- it's forgivable. It's absolutely 100% forgivable. Um, the colors pop. The colors are amazing. The colors are so good. As Devin said, the, the choreography, the dancing sequences are breathtaking. The songs, again, for the most part, like 90% of them are great. Um, all Like, honestly, like, all these songs are great. Like, they're all great. <sighs> Period. Um, it's definitely a little long, but it doesn't feel long because it's so much fun <laughs> until people start dying. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it's a, but it's, it is a really solid story. It's a really great story. It's a, it's the the best adaptation of G- Romeo and Juliet I've seen, for sure. I can say that, in all honesty. Have you seen a lot of adaptations? I, you know, I haven't. Okay. But I read it. I saw the one from th- from this year, wasn't it? When did they oh, is it the Zephyr Early one? It was around this time. Yeah. Oh, I love that movie so much. Um, if it came out this year, I might make you watch it. There's the Baz Luhrmann, but like... I haven't seen the Baz Luhrmann one, honestly. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, I'm just getting off topic. Um, it's obviously... Like, what is there to say? Like, you've all seen it. Anyone listening has seen West Side Story. And yeah. If you haven't, like, you're fucking living under a rock or you're 12. You should definitely go see it. Um, but yeah, this is... Actually, and I will say, too, like... This is one of the first movies I ever remember because this was like a movie that meant so much to my parents, to my grandparents, like that this was just around. Mm-hmm. Like this movie was showed to me. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's that kind of movie. It used to always play on cable too, for yeah. sure. Um, wow. Now I'm just saying random dumb things. They showed this movie um, on TV. They did. They have seen it once or twice. Check your local listings. <laughs> um, Dang, there's something else I, w- I really wanted to talk about. And now I, for the life of me, 
cannot remember what that was. Huh. Hmm. Huh. Mysteries. Yeah. Um, I will say I agree with you. The performances are a little bit over the top, but everyone is on the same level of over the topness. Yeah. Which helps it. Absolutely. And you know, um, you know, I was like, this is the first time I've watched it where I was like a little confused as to how old they're supposed to be because like none of them seem to be in school and yet they like go to a dance at a gym, but they all like, they have like jobs. I don't really understand how old they're supposed to be. But I do like that it is, like, very focused on, like, young people. Like, literally the only adults that you ever see in this are, like, Doc and then the cops and the guy at the school. But, like, otherwise it's, like, very, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Contained? Yeah, it's, like, very contained to just, like, issues that these, like, young people are facing. Right. And actually, I don't, I think it was the summer. I don't think there was school in session. I think that was just, I think they used to have a lot more, like, community-type dances. That makes sense. Because, like, my grandma and grandpa used to go dancing all the time and tell me all about it. Like, they go true. to dances, I mean, you know, yeah. and it wasn't just school dances. That makes sense. Um, it was just a different time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that to me. Yeah. I can't wait to see what Spielberg does with it. No, I think it, you know. This is so messed say. up. It's so messed up. Steven Spielberg is remaking this movie for no reason. For no reason. This movie doesn't need to be remade. You should just let people have things. We should just keep our classics, you know? We don't want to keep remaking it. Someone going to remake Schindler's List? Hmm? No, they're not. So he shouldn't go remaking other people's things. I don't know if that's a fair comparison. <laughs> well, it's like his Oscar winning movie. Yeah. Who's going to remake that? No one. No. Actually, probably in like 30 years, someone will remake it. Really, I'm going to put it in color. No, that's <laughs> not going to happen. They remade Jurassic Park. And how did that go? <laughs> you know, I'm surprised they haven't like remade Jaws, although they've they've definitely did like similar things, obviously. Like everyone's stolen. The Meg, isn't that Jaws. basically? <laughs> yeah. like no, I mean, I don't know if it's exactly like it. No, I mean I, I agree with that. Well, that's fine. If he wanted to make a different adaptation of Romeo and Juliet about gangs, he could do that. But what he's doing is remaking West Side Story. No, I know. I only brought this up to infuriate you. It does infuriate me because this doesn't need to happen. If people want to watch West Side Story, they can. Like you said, it's on TV. You can watch it anywhere. It's around. We don't need we don't need Ansel Elgort <laughs> singing about Maria. <laughs> All right. So what do critics think of this movie? Well, they like it. Okay. It's got a <laughs> Rotten Tomato audience score of 84%. Critics score of 94%. Uh, the box office made $44.1 million a lot of dollars and it was named to some lists on the american film institute's original list of the 100 greatest films is ranked at number 41 10 years later on the anniversary list it got bumped down to 51 Ooh. on their list of the 100 greatest passions aka love stories it was ranked at number three fun fact about their list of the greatest love stories out of the top 10 only one do the people end up together which I think is funny. <laughs> um, which one's that? I don't remember which one oh, okay. it is, honestly. Okay. Uh, on their list of and the... Harry Met Sally, maybe. I don't think that's not in the top ten, actually. That's bullshit. I know. Okay, anyway. On their list of the 100 greatest songs, we got three entries from West Side Story. Mm-hmm. At number 59, Tonight. Tonight, tonight. At number 
35, America. America. And number 20, somewhere. How's that one go? (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere. Okay. That's Beyond the sea. That's not it. Somewhere. On the American Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest musicals, it was incorrectly placed at number two. (laughs) (laughs) And it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 1997. Wait, what, what was number one? Singing in the Rain. Ooh. I'm not saying Singing in the Rain is bad. I'm just saying, like, just flip those two and we're happy. Singing in the Rain is actually probably my favorite movie musical. Ugh. It's up there. It's up there. I have no problem with it being number two, but West Side Story is number one. (laughs) (laughs) They're adorable. I know. Oh, and then another fun fact. um, Rita Moreno, who won her Oscar for this film for Best Supporting Actress, went on to win an EGOT, Mm. which is an Emmy grammy grammy oscar, oscar and tony. tony and she was actually the first person to ever earn an egot oh awesome yeah so and she's still uh kicking ass and she's great hell yeah was last year at the oscar she wore the same dress that she wore when she won her oscar so she's cheap <laughs> she's tiny is what she <laughs> is she's got a good workout regimen all right it's time for the whole entire point of this podcast kyle did the academy get it right Devin, in the case of 1961, they sure did. Yay! Yes, they did. <laughs> 100%. Easy peasy. Okay. So I guess that's it. I guess that's our episode. <laughs> um, we came in listening to the winner for best song at the Academy Awards, which was Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Moon River. And I would never, ever argue that that song did not deserve to win because it's a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Beautiful song. But uh, just for for fun times, we're going to go out listening to a song from West Side Story. And I'll let you decide what song that is. Who? Kyle. The audience? Oh, <laughs> me? Yeah. You let me decide? Yeah. I'm going to do somewhere because I can't even think of somewhere. how that goes right now. Well, that's good because it's... be nice to get a refresher. The best song. So we're going to go out listening to Somewhere from West Side Story. And next week, we will have our supplemental episode about some of the films from 1961 that did not get nominated for Best Picture. As you may have picked up on during the episode, one of those will be Breakfast at Tiffany's. (laughs) And uh, Looking forward to it. We'll surprise you with what the other two are. Yes. They're not 100% picked yet. So uh, that's it. That's the episode. See you next week. Bye. Bye. and quiet and open